Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Our guest today is Dr. Paula Ferrata. Dr. Farada is Professor of Surgery and Director of the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine. She is also the Medical Director of the Surgical and Trauma ICU for the VCU Health System. Dr. Farada completed her medical school in Columbia, graduating magna cum laude from Universidad del Valle Medicine. She then completed an internship at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, followed by general surgery training at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She then completed a trauma critical care fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as an acute care surgery fellowship at Shock Trauma. Welcome, Dr. Farada. Thank you so much for having me. So we always like to start with um, getting you to tell us a little more about your background and um, how you got into medicine. Oh, well, I am originally from Colombia. My uh, father is a surgeon. He's a trauma surgeon, but in Colombia, trauma surgery means surgery of the body. So, um, and uh, my mom is an OB-GYN nurse, and sometimes we used to have issues with childcare, so I spend a lot of... uh, uh, time in the hospital and um, me and my sister um, and um, uh, there's not as many restrictions as there is there are in the United States so the first time that I scrubbed in a patient it was a uh, rupture triple A and I was 12 years old so oh I think after you um, you know blood uh, is very scandalous and it can have very different reactions in people my reaction was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And how do I get um, uh, more involved with this? And I think that um, surgery chose me. And then, you know, well, life, um, I, um, I, I did medical school at, um, in Cali, Colombia, because I'm from there. And I didn't realize I wanted to come to the United States. I had the opportunity to train here and um, see the differences between the resources that we have in Latin America and here. And I think um, there's pros and cons of both. And um, uh, even though I train here and I work at uh, Richmond, I um, I continue to work internationally because I believe there's, you know, things that we can do in both environments to help patients meet. So we kind of did some research and we found out that you were actually an actress and a uh, <sighs> model in Colombia before you joined medicine. So uh, what prompted this transition? That's funny. Um, <laughs> so I, um, I, uh, I was just, you know, when I was little, I, um, I did a couple of TV pro, uh, uh, TV commercials, and um, I got involved in TV that way. And I was a hostess of a, of a television program, and I think that gave me some experience in public speaking, and I learned a lot from it. Um, it, when I went to medical school, it, it just, it, it, it was not, um, you know, the people in TV didn't understand why I needed to go and study for my anatomy test. And the teachers didn't care that I have to spend seven hours taping a uh, TV, um, show. Right. So I had to choose which one I will dedicate most of my time. And 
Although I think that I learned a lot from my experience in um, TV commercials and television, my passion was always taking care of um, people and taking care of patients and have that human connection. So I decided to just do that. And that's how I, that's how, that's how it became 100% medicine. What kind of, uh, I'm curious, what kind of, <laughs> what kind of television show was it? Yeah, it's funny. So I, um, uh, I, I, I was a hostess of a television show that used to interview people. Uh, so I interviewed uh, several people before they were, fa- they were famous. And then, um, and then, uh, I, I did some acting, some comedy that is available on YouTube. That's hilarious that you guys had a hold of that. Is there any, uh, <laughs> any chance of a future career in television? Are you the next no, future Dr. Oz? absolutely not. Thank you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, my true call has always been surgery and medicine and, and, you know, it was nice to do that on the side, but while I was like, when, when you find your place, I was uh, doing a TV commercial and I always was wondering, I did not want to be in the role of the model. I wanted to be in the role of the director. Like I wanted to tell people what to do. And then I probably, then I re- started realizing that I was in the wrong side, right? That I should be doing something else. Yeah. I'm interested to know someone um, with your background and having been on television, um, have you seen any of these television shows depicting surgery, medicine? What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that we need to have actual surgeons kind of join that role of the entertainment media? Well, I think we need surgeons everywhere. I don't think that we only need them in television and media. I think we need a surgeon in the boardroom. So I think we need a surgeon um, and uh, the boardrooms of healthcare systems, organizations, and pretty much everywhere. So people not, can understand when they take decisions, how they impact the patients that we treat. And I think that uh, we're so busy taking care of critically ill people and the elbow deep in somebody's abdomen operating on that uh, sometimes we leave these important decisions to other people and, uh, and therefore our voice never gets heard. Um, so, um, yeah, I, obviously there's some, there's some TV programs that are so out of touch with reality. I think some of them try to make an effort. I think, um, uh, Grace Anatomy has a consultant that is not a surgeon, but it's a surgical resident. I think that is, is a paid position for them to consult on that. But in general, I think surgeons need to be involved in leadership above and beyond what surgery is so we can, um, control our environment better and and uh turf the resources to where they are needed that's uh that's very well said um i was interested in knowing how did you decide on trauma critical care yeah so when i went to uh surgery uh my dad my dad is, i told you before my dad is a trauma surgeon but he kept telling me oh you know maybe you want to do transplant maybe you want to do whatever he tried to convince me of anything else because in his own words trauma surgeons were the dinosaurs of surgery but the problem that i had is that i would um you know consider vascular surgery or transplant surgery and say oh you know i just do transplant fellowship but i take trauma call for fun oh we'll do vascular fellowship but then i will take trauma call for fun i'm like you know what i'm just gonna do for fun what i like to do for life and that will make my life more interesting i just really love my job i think uh 
I um, I am incredibly lucky that I ended up in a place where trauma surgeons are not only babysitting everybody else's services, we actually operate on trauma patients, gunshot wounds, and even blunt trauma, really bad blunt trauma. I'm not saying I like people to get traumatized. I'm saying that when they get trauma that is bad enough that they need an operating room, I like to be the person providing for that service. Um, and uh, critical care just makes you smarter and uh, gives you the opportunity to continue to treat that sick patient uh, throughout the entire course. Uh, from the moment that you see them in the emergency room and you know that they need to be resuscitated and exactly what needs to be done to ensure that their outcome is the best, to the OR and knowing that much control to critical care afterwards and see them you know, um, get better, either go home or go to rehab and come back and see you. I just think I'm really passionate about what I do and I I love it. And I think it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You go, uh, I I take a call, I guess I take a call for trauma, critical care and AGS. And I never know if it's going to be the penetrating trauma or the AGS or what is it that I'm going to find. But there's always something rewarding and something that you can do to change somebody's outcome. Well, that leads us nicely into our dissection of the day. Uh, speaking of trauma surgery and critical care, uh, for our dissection day specifically, you, Dr. Farada, we'd like to talk more about image-based resuscitation. Now, we've all used the ultrasound, you know, at bedside in the ICU to try to, to determine a patient's fluid status, etc. How did you come? You, you wrote a, an article in 2016 about this in Journal of Critical Care and Q Care Surgery. How did you come about uh, you, kind of creating a standardized platform for image-based resuscitation? Right. So, um, you know, everybody has their moment when you think about, like, what did you do with you? How did you build your career around one thing? And sometimes it comes back to one situation and one patient. In my case, it is. I was a PGY3 and I was taking call in the ICU and I had this patient with cholangitis and she was very, very sick. And um, with, I'm talking INR of 10 sick that I couldn't put a central line at that time. We used to use swans to evaluate for fluid status and we called and we were trying to figure out what to do and how not to overload her and you know at that time was the time that we used to do crystalloid 10 liters of crystalloid on people and we called the cardiologist to come and take a look and give us an assessment of course they they were looking at different different things right we were looking at resuscitation and you just click. And then when I, uh, when I, uh, did fellowship at Pittsburgh and then at shock trauma, there were people that were thinking the same thing and doing the same thing. So when I joined, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University eight years ago, I figured, you know, if we're intensivists and we're dealing with this question every day of how much fluid we should give, how much laces we should give, how can we make these patients better? Then we need to be, uh, again, as surgeons, Instead of letting other people tell us what to do, we need to be the people leading these. So we um, created a program and we train everybody at that time, including my boss. It was, it's really hard to convince older people of new technologies, but it's not impossible. So, um, as, especially as new faculty. So, but we created a course that we taught it to, at that time, my boss, Rai Vachuri, who was incredibly supportive and open-minded and to everybody else. And then we trained the residents and we trained the fellows and, and we started working with the American College of Surgeons and have a training course in echocardiogram as well. And 
we started working with the Pan American Trauma Society and created a, a course similar as well. And through um, VCU and, and the American College of Surgeons and the Pan American Trauma Society, we have been able to train over 100 surgeons. Um, I think that course has been given uh, through the, throughout the U.S. everywhere and uh, in Latin America, in Paraguay, Uruguay, Panama, Brazil, multiple places, so Colombia, uh, Chile, um, Bolivia. We had been training, and more importantly, training the trainers so they can, because um, if you go do a course, but they, you don't leave an expert, then then the concept is going to die. You have to leave somebody there that is going to be able to continue to train more people and um, keeping people current. So uh, that's how it was. The, that uh, article, the last one that I wrote in Journal, Journal of Trauma, was kind of a summary of everything that we have done. But but I think over the last eight years of my career, um, a lot of time I have spent trying to train surgeons or, or training surgeons in, uh, in that, in looking at the heart, seeing if it's empty or full, if there's any effusion or good contractility, and more importantly, training them to be good trainers to bring more people to the pool so we can continue to pass along the message. So, t so just let's take a, a one step back for us, maybe for uh, those out there who aren't familiar with this, you know, image-based resuscitation. What exactly do you mean by image-based resuscitation? And practically, like in the trauma bay, how, what modalities are you using um, and what are some of the different uh, ways uh, on a day-to-day -day basis you're using image to guide your resuscitations? Yeah, so the trauma bay is only one place, right? We operate on people and they go to the PACU or they go to the floor, not necessarily to the ICU. And all of a sudden, or, or you're taking care of somebody post-op day number two or three, and all of a sudden that person becomes hypotensive and you don't know what to do. And yeah, you do have an stethoscope and you can put an A-line and like spend more time in bringing them to the ICU. But if you have an ultrasound probe, you can, within the first five minutes of evaluation, know if that patient has a hemothorax, a pneumothorax, if they're fluid overloaded, because you're going to see comet tells in the, um, in the long exam. Uh, you can look at the IVC, see, see it's full of, or flat. You can see at the heart and see if it has good contractility or not, or if it's empty or full. You can see if you have an effusion or not. You can do a fast and see if you have fluid on your belly. And within five minutes, you have made, you have narrowed your differential diagnosis significantly. Furthermore, you can also take a look at the right side of the uh, heart compared to the left and uh, probably diagnose a pulmonary emboli. We have about five that we have diagnosed only with using uh, limited echocardiogram. And uh, mind you, these, these exams are done by residents, nurse practitioners, not only attending. We have over 4,000 that have been produced in our unit. So um, it's just a great tool and I think uh, a little bit underutilized. And, I, and yes, in trauma, it's great. If you have a patient with a blonde uh, trauma and has a positive fast, that patient goes to the OR. Or if a patient was a stab around the pericardial area, you see if you have a, um, uh, an effusion, that patient goes to the OR. But it really can give you a lot more information than that. And I think... Um, we need to embrace it as surgeons rather than letting other people um, drive the drive the uh, um, be the captain of the ship. If that makes any sense. Now, a lot of our listeners are out there thinking of ways that they could try to improve their critical care uh, 
critical care, I guess. Uh, is there any courses out there for image-based resuscitation? There's ton of courses. So there's um, the SCCM has a very um, a thorough course, which is two days. The American College of Surgeons has a, um, a smaller version of that course, and we offer it almost every year at the college. Um, Pan American Trauma Society for Latin America also offers it every year. The college has an uh, opportunity, unique opportunity to export this course and bring it to your institution. You just have to have somebody that comes and directs it. Um, and it's probably cheaper to export the course from the college to your institution than, um, than sending 10 people to a meeting. So there's tons of opportunities, but more than the course, I think a course is good because a course will teach you the basics. But if you take a course and if you don't do it ever again, you're going to forget about it. Mm. You have to use the ultrasound like you would use the stethoscope. And we literally, there are, you have two ultrasound machines in the ICU and we have one for the floor and there's tons of them in the ER. We walked around with that ultrasound machine. It's, uh, and it's, it's right now positive peer pressure. Uh, so if a resident asks to another resident, hey, uh, you gave Lasix so you give um, balls of fluid, most of the time the, the question that follows is like, did you look at the IVC or did you look at the heart? Was it empty or full? And I think that that's what keeps things alive, right? Make sure that we hold each other to the same standard and we uh, ensure that the people that are coming into the program keep learning. That's great. So, you know, as we move towards these newer methods of resuscitation, image-guided resuscitation, there's always the question about what skills the surgeons and residents should retain from the past. So is there still a utility for us to learn how to float a swan? Or what's your opinion on kind of the utilization of swan GANS catheters now? Um, that's a great question. I think that uh, swans are probably best for pulmonary to actually diagnose and treat pulmonary hypertension because you actually are measuring the pressure. Um, uh, for volume, you're pretty much estimating volume based on a measure pressure. So you have other ways to do that. I don't think that we should lose as surgeons any skill. We just need to understand that every procedure, um, invasive or not invasive, that we do to a patient has consequences, right? So you do an ultrasound, you think the patient is uh, is overloaded and diuresis them. If you were wrong, then that patient is probably going to get AKI. You place a swan and you know that from the complications of the placing the line plus inflating the balloon, you can have a higher rate of PE. You, 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 you need to, you better know like, what are you using that tool for. So you're, um, you know, in the, in the balance of, of, uh, benefit versus harm you're always benefiting benefiting your patient i never do to a patient anything that i would not allow to be done on myself or in a family member that i love right so that's how i look surgery we're surgeons we're, we need to we're surgeons and that means that we need to be great technicians and we should not lose the capacity of of, of performing technical skills. Now, if you pair that with a, with a good brain that actually also is going to help you take great decisions for patient care, then you have probably the best possible doctor and advocate for somebody that is really, really ill. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I guess my follow-up question to that is, um, in your practice then, how do you go about making the decision of, you know, when to do the echocardiogram or when to float that swan? Because I think right. in many of our experiences, uh, nowadays, nobody places swan GANS catheters. And so that's why we, we're not getting the training. So how, how do you make that decision? No, that's a great question. So we have a protocol. Um, we ask many things in trauma, right? So mm -hmm. we have a protocol in the unit of resuscitation for eulemia, and our protocol includes the use of echocardiogram and repeating it after we do a um, after we do whatever with that patient. We decide whatever um, whatever it is that we're doing. We repeat it to see if it worked. Like if you gave bolus, if it worked. If you gave LASIKs, LASIKs, how it looks, or if you're starting the patient in pressures. The protocol also includes um, a arterial waveform uh, variation analysis. So we use the Vigileo. Um, we do not float any that many swans anymore. Transplant patients once in a while will get a uh, swan, but because they do have problems with pulmonary hypertension, and our cardiac unit also manages a lot of swans because of that reason. Our patient population in the surgical and the trauma ICU, we go by our protocol for resuscitation for eulemia that includes Vigileo and ECHO. Um, so there's a lot of rumblings on, you know, how uh, surgical residents are trained and how to measure the quality of education and the quality of autonomy that we are getting um, in our surgical education. And you've won many awards in this arena with your leadership and education. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, you know, the current landscape of our surgical resident education? I think that's a it's a great loaded question. <laughs> I think uh, surgical education is changing, and um, as generations are changing, and we have to change with it, right? Um, I think um, it's important to understand autonomy as long as it benefits the patient. And for residents that, are, that will be listening to this, I think autonomy is directly proportional to capacity or, um, you know, efficiency, you're, you're, you're going to let people are going to let you do things if they know that you can do it. Um, if you're, if you cannot do it, then probably autonomy won't be a good thing, right? That I think the bad, bad thing is, is, is being really confident and not knowing how to do it. That's that, that is, um, that is not great. I think for educators, I think the key is to, understand your audience right so some mm -hmm. people need more hand holding and some people need more freedom and it's really hard to strike the balance but it's uh it's, i wish i could give uh, an advice that applied to all but it doesn't every resident is different and and it's not only by pgy level either so there's some pgy ones that that are super great technically and some PGY ones that need a lot of hand holding and that goes for every PGY level including fellowship. It's just in a one-to-one, -one, um, you know, one-to-one -one scenario. Similarly, on the lines of um, surgical residents and education, um, you also have an interest in uh, wellness. Can you tell us more about uh, what your activities have been in the realm of wellness? Yeah, so... I, um, I, I confess that doing residency, I was not that into wellness because I didn't even know that I could be burned out. It was really hard for me to get into surgical residency because I was a foreign graduate. 
So once I get in, it was like, you know, I was one of these people that are like annoyingly crazy optimistic. Like every day I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm surgical resident. <laughs> so then and so I think, uh, I think reality hit when I uh, was married and had a child and, and I'm married to another surgeon and assuming all these responsibilities and felt that, that um, you know, you need to... The same way that you put in your to-do list, check the x-ray, check the EKG, check the enzymes, you have to put in your to-do list, check with yourself and make sure, make sure you're, you know, sleep well, eat well, and uh, treat yourself that you would, like the, the same way that you would treat a good, good friend, right? I think that um, we as surgeons face... Uh, face a huge challenge because we treat people that are sick and sometimes they don't do well. And when those people don't do well and they get complications, first we have M&M, which sometimes might be constructive and sometimes might not. But then you have yourself that punish yourself for everything that went wrong for that patient. And sometimes we need to exert a leader forgiveness with, with each other, with ourselves and with each other. Anyway, it became really important and I became really aware of wellness and aware of uh, myself if I didn't pay attention to that and um, in the environment. Um, and I started to reading a lot about um, how to manage myself and how to do things every day that will keep me from that will keep me happy, that will keep me uh, motivated. Um, you know, the last, the worst thing that you can do is having all this training of medical school and then residency research fellowship to just, you know, be done and wanted to jump, right? That um, you and, and all of you guys are going to this training. We went for a training for a reason and that's to be able to help patients, but you can't help anybody if you're, uh, if you're, um, if you're broken, so uh, getting yourself together, I think, is a step number one. Step, you can't lead anybody, a team or a division or a unit or anybody, if you cannot lead yourself. Make your own bed, take your own shower, brush your own teeth, right? Look in the mirror and feel proud of the things that you have done and accomplished and, and be happy with your everyday life. And if you can, if you're miserable, then no, you're going to make everybody else miserable. And I don't know that the patients will be that well served. So that's why, so it became an, a personal issue. And then it became an issue that, that I became really invested with uh, residents and fellows. And, and we have, uh, an, I think, in a great culture at VCU of, um, you know, making sure that we take care of each other, of ourselves and each other. Um, cause I think if we can do that, it's really hard to take care of anybody else. Well, thanks. That was very well said and certainly something that applies to all of us, regardless of our specialty and level of training. Um, something that we all need to be cognizant about and focus on. So with that, I think we will, uh, transition into our segment called tips and tricks. So this is a, a an area of the podcast where we like to talk about something that's a little bit more, uh, clinically challenging, um, and may help us get out of those more uh, clinically uh, sticky situations. So with you, we wanted to talk about uh, necrotizing soft tissue infection. Um, it's something as a, a trauma and acute care surgeon um, you see frequently, um, and sometimes it's obvious what you need to do. Um, it's obvious that the patient has a, a um, 
rapidly spreading necrotizing infection that needs to be surgically debrided. But other times it's a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more uh, difficult to make that diagnosis. So what are your tips and trips, first off, for making the diagnosis? And then we can talk a little bit more about the actual surgical and medical management of this. Right. So I think um, high suspicion. And you're absolutely right. Usually when they call us, it's because there's a CT scan and there's air in the CT scan, right? Mm. That's when surgery gets called. But we should be able, as clinician, to make the uh, the diagnosis earlier. Um, don't wait until the patient is crunchy. Um, uh, y count might not rise immediately. Uh, uh, an infection in the skin with blisters and low sodium, for me, that's enough to um, seriously um, uh, consider the breathing. And sometimes, you know, you do have to put in the balance what do you do, but sometimes an incision can make it can help you make the diagnosis of a necrotizing soft tissue infection. So um, I'm sure people listening to the um, podcast have heard of the LARIC um, index, but so high glucose, um, low sodium, having somebody that is hyperglycemic and um, in um, sometimes not even diabetics, but just hyperglycemic. In my experience, people that are retaining a little bit of fluid, and you can see this very carefully when you watch the trends in the isonose, and you see that their BUN is a little bit higher and they're retaining, they're retaining a little bit of fluid. That's usually just before they get super sick. The creatinine might not even increase by that, that point because renal failure is a late sign. So, um, those are tricks to be very aware of. I think gas, uh, and then pain out of proportional to physical exam is also a, um, high indicator of ischemia. So high, sometimes people consult you and they don't know why they consult you, right? Mm -hmm. They consult you for something for high Y count or for somebody that is septic and, but, um, they probably consult you because of the abdomen because that's usually the constant surgical constants that we get. But they might they might need a surgeon that just don't know don't know where. And it's uh, I think our job as surgeons to make sure that we uh, do a thorough physical exam and we find out if there's any reasons to um, surgical reasons to take this patient to the OR. That is probably the best case scenario for somebody that is septic is to have a surgical source because we can take it out. To what level are you using? So those patients you get called on um, that maybe has, you know, a, a, a um, moderate suspicion based on exam and based on their uh, Larynx score. Um, to what extent are you using imaging? Um, most of the time, unfortunately, when I get called, there's already imaging. But if I see somebody that is has an obvious infection and is hyponatremic and has a white, high Y count, I most of the time just take them to the OR. But in my experience, these people smell different. I, I think that when we see patients, we, you know, when they taught me in medical school, you need to see, touch, feel. You need to also smell. These they, they, these ones smell different. Sometimes when I see a patient with necrotizing of tissue infection, I can smell it from the room that there's a problem. Okay, so uh, now take us into the operating room, that initial debridement. Uh, what are some principles and what are some tips and tricks um, uh, once you're there? And just to, add, yeah. just to add on that quickly, if you're not sure that this is actually a necrotizing uh, disease, is there something you start out with for, before you actually go complete debridement? I just take them to the water and do an incision. 
Okay. Just because I think that, um, so uh, in these, these part that I'm going to say, I have no evidence of, but in these people that have a early abscess, early necrotizing insufficient tissue infection, sometimes you do an incision, wash them off and they get better. They just do. And that's just for experience. I, um, I haven't written that up yeah. yet. What about your so, the ex- extent of de- uh, your initial debridement? How do you, how right, do you decide how that's much to take? Great, yeah. So enough that you have source control, uh, but not too much that now you're going into the perfect debridement and you have a patient that has an INR of four and a hemoglobin of two, right? So use your critical skills and your acute care surgeon skills uh, for this type of surgery. Debrid enough that you will take the deadness out. Um, if you're in the OR, you can put your hand and then push it, and usually it will let you go until you cannot go anymore. And that's when you know that you have, to, especially when it's necrotizing fasciitis, which is not that obvious as other soft tissue infections. Um, there's some uh, fluid planes uh, created in between the tissues. When you push your hand and you cannot go anymore, that's as much as you should go. Now, if your patient has, you know, is profoundly acidotic and coagulopathic and hemodynamically unstable, just debride as much as you can with without causing terrible hemodynamic rearrangements. Bring them to the ICU and continue the one-to-one resuscitation until they're stable enough to go back. But um, initial debridement, I'm sure you saw the East guidelines that we published not too long ago. That was, um, I think the papers are six hours is early. Earlier than six hours is early. But anybody that comes to our emergency room at VCU that has an acrotization of tissue infection is in the OR in less than two hours. Because timing of, that's just basic principles of taking care of somebody with septic shock. Timing of initiation of antibiotics and timing of source control is going to be directly proportional to good outcome of patients. So that we treat them, we are at the bedside of these patients um, within less than an hour and we're taking them if they're really necrotized of tissue infection within two hours to the operating room. And what's, uh, what antibiotics are you using at uh, your institution? Right, we... Uh, Bansosan and Clinda until we narrow it to something, but most of them are. And Clinda is just in in case that in case you're you're treating some something with a toxin. But uh, most of these, as we all know, they're polymicrobial. So um, uh, probably Sosan will take care of it. But because we don't know if these people have MRSA, we start broad and then narrow it if necessary. And uh, how are you, so when you're doing your debridements, how are you dealing with the skin? How much skin are you taking? Right. Uh, as much as necessary without being mindless. So that's, it's a good point. So if you, so if you have a bunch of um, uh, um, subcutaneous tissue and or fascia that is dead, but the skin is not dead. Um, uh, if you, sometimes if you complete, if you debride too much that now that skin is going to die, it's useless. But maybe if you if you have the opportunity to leave some skin um, that will it will help you in the future for closure. So you because you have to think ahead what is going to have to happen to this patient. You're going to be do a big surgery and resection today, and then um, the first thing that I was going to say is don't be too quick and put in a vac, right? So if mm-hmm. you have an anaerobe and you place a vac with a little bit of blood, 
you just created a super anaerobic party, uh, right? So mm -hmm. there's a little bit of blood, which is gonna bacteria is gonna love it, and then you're gonna have your back place, and that's gonna create the perfect environment to to make that infection worse. So I don't place a vac until I see granulation tissue, and I make sure that there's no. Um, that all the necrosis is taken care of. Then um, think about if you leave some skin that can help you in the future in, with closure because if you have to end up doing skin grafts on these people, they're going to end up now with two wounds to heal. And um, some of them are also malnourished and have other problems as well. So that two wounds is the least of that what they need, but sometimes that's the only way of closing them. Dr. Fry, what's the role for intravenous immunoglobin in these patients? I we don't use it here. Um, you know, we were part of the ATOX study. Uh, I'm not sure if you have heard it. It's a, a AB103. Uh, it's called AB103. It's a peptic that is mimetic of T lymphocyte receptor uh, CD28. It's called ATOX, and it's supposed to be uh, help uh, patients. Uh, the immunological response to um, necrotizations of tissue infections. And we were at the beginning part of the, was, it was a study published by Dr. Walter in JAMA. And um, um, we at the time could not recruit patients that were thin enough because they needed to be under some BMI and our patients were not um, under that um, BMI. But um, uh, it's supposed to be great for uh, decreasing the chances of uh, renal failure and improving uh, comorbid improving um, outcomes uh, a, after the resection. And is there a reason you're not using it other than just the BMI issue? No, uh, we were. Uh, there's no reason we were not using. We were just part of the. We were part of the uh, initial prospective randomized control trial, but we needed to be dropped off because our patients were a okay. little bit larger in okay. size. So another question I had is, you know, frequently at academic centers, we get transfers in who um, have extensive disease, and sometimes their anatomy is so distorted by the necrotic tissue. Um, what is kind of the thought process about, you know, the long-term outcomes of these patients as you're doing the debridement? Yeah, no, I think, I think one of the things that we need to think about is, well, you first go with the mentality of I'm saving a life, right? But you also have to keep the family on board and you also have to keep the patient on board and recognize when it will be the appropriate time of calling palliative service, not only for um, changing the your goals of care, but also for the help that they're going to need in treating their pain um, if they survive. Mind you that the, the huge holes that we have in tissue are important. It's also a disease that carries a significant mortality. So after they recover from the, from the uh, uh, multi-organ failure, how are they going to be dealing with the pain and the other issues of, I don't know, missing a leg or missing half of their thorax? And um, in some perineals of tissue infections, we have to create stomas to divert this tool as well. So all of that is are important psychological issues that a patient that was five minutes before this happened were completely fine or in their mind completely fine. Mm -hmm. And then they wake up in the ICU with all these problems. So, yeah, I agree. Those are important issues to talk about. Dr. Friday, now we're going to move into our last segment, which is our final five. This is kind of a, a segment that's informal trying to get our listeners to get a better idea who you are personally. Uh, so we're going to ask you five questions just kind of in, in sequence here. So 
First question, is there any, is there someone outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and career? Oh, a bunch of people, uh, but it's really hard. I, it's really hard to say. So my father has been really influential, but boo, he's in medicine too. Because <laughs> he's a surgeon. But uh, everybody in my family has been really influential because they keep me in my toes and make sure that I am, as I mentioned to all of you before, I joined um, I'm a mom and I'm a, a wife and I am a daughter and a sister. And I think that the first leadership role that I had in my life was to keep my family together and healthy um, and, you know, food on the table and making sure that the dog is alive, the cat is alive and everybody's happy in my family. So um, in terms, I imagine that you're uh, talking philosophically or historically. Um, I love history, um, especially uh, Roman history. Um, eh, but every, everybody in history has their dark side. So I'm really leery to tell you the people that I have uh, that have been really influential. I think that you can take from every personality in history and in your own life um always the good traits and kind of forget the bad and keep it uh, keep it light because life is short and um and just remember the good things and keep uh things optimistic i did not answer your question did i <laughs> that's okay <laughs> uh my question for you was what's your favorite movie or a genre movie Oh, um, Shawshank for Redemption. I don't know how to say that in English. You know what I'm talking about, right? Shawshank for Redemption. Oh, yeah. Can you say yes. it? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have an accent. I don't know if you noticed. Um, I think it's pretty smart how that guy uh, uh, sets himself free and has the patience to wait for that long. Yeah. Yes, that is a nice movie. <laughs> okay, number three. So, uh we all have different ways of coping. So during, you know, your stressful residency, what was your guilty pleasure or your, you know, maybe a, a, a go-to snack that you would go to, to, to help yourself cope with all the stress? Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> chocolate is my favorite. It still is. And, um, so I, I, I don't have much time to work out, but I truly believe that working out, you know how you see the tigers in the, like the poor tigers that are in either in a zoo or in a cage, they're walking around is because they want to burn all that energy. I think that we need to, we're, we humans were made to walk and to like not be sitting down. So if, if I'm not in the or standing up, I'm walking. I don't take elevators anywhere. Um, and I think, um, so my number of flights, uh, is directly proportional to my number of my amount of chocolate that I take per day. I still use it. I think chocolate is the most, um, uh, legal, uh, without a prescription antidepressive drug. <laughs> That's great. Um, so similar lines, if you were to compete in the Olympics, whether it's the winter or summer Olympics, is there one event that you would want to do? Doesn't have to be anything that you've done before. Um, running probably. I don't know. I never thought about it. I uh, I don't. I know. I'm not that athletic. I don't think. No, maybe something that it will be like team building. Is soccer in the Olympics? Probably not. But it will be soccer. Something like something that is like team team building. That is not one person. That is all together. Something like that. Great. 
And question number five, uh, right now, what would we find in uh, or on your white coat? I don't wear a white coat because I think it's gross. <laughs> I don't well, wear anything. Maybe. and I don't wear I wear a scrubs for the unit and um, I keep my uh, bare, you know, I don't, this is, this is, I think, a U.S. thing. Here we wear white coats onto your wrist. And you know how they did the study that the ties of men have a bunch of bacteria? Mm. I think your wrists have a lot of bacteria too. I I don't want to bring that home. So I wear uh, the scrubs in the unit with my elbows exposed and I wash my hands constantly. And when I'm not in the unit and or in the OR, I wear regular clothes and I don't wear a lab coat. I'm 100%, I'm 100% with you. I don't either. And I get in trouble a lot for walking around without a white coat because it's our hospital policy that you have to be wearing one. But I'm 100% with you. I think we should start a, a no white coat movement. <laughs> right, right. They're gross. They're disgusting. Right, uh, well, well, you know what? That's one of the great things about being an attending. <laughs> like, I get away without wearing a white coat. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think, yeah, if you started on Twitter, I'll follow you. All right, absolutely. There we go. Well, for sure. That, that wraps it up. Dr. Frada. I want to thank you so much for taking, that was fantastic. And I know you're very busy and I appreciate you taking time at our schedule to be with us today. Uh, if people want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Do you have a Twitter handle or anything you'd like to throw out there? Yeah, my Twitter handle is, let me look it up right now, it's pferrada1. Or in the ACS meetings, or um, or in the trauma meetings, or, or whatever. I think, or just Google me and send me an email. I'll be happy to answer. You know, most of people I talk to people almost weekly about uh, how to get in. How foreign graduates that want to know how to get into a career in the United States is, I guess, a hot topic, a hot question. I don't know, and or maybe they don't have a place where they give them like straightforward information. No, I talk to people that I don't know a lot, and they usually find me, I think, through Google and my email. Great. And I'll be happy to continue to do so. Or hashtag no white coat, and we can just uh, search hashtag for you there. Hashtag no white coat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until next time, dominate the day. 